0: Genesis chapter 1 reads like this. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, one day. Verse 6, Then God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters which were below the expanse from the waters which were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening, and there was morning, a second day. Then in verse 9, God said, let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the gathering of the waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit after their kind, with seed in them on the earth. And it was so. And the earth brought forth vegetation. Plants yielding seed after their kind. Trees bearing fruit with seed in them after their kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning a third day. Then God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. And let them be for lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to govern the day, and the lesser light to govern the night. He made the stars also. And God placed them in the expanse of the heaven to give light on the earth, and to govern the day and night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and morning, a fourth day. Verse 20, Then God said, Let the waters teem with swarms of living creatures, and let the birds fly above the earth. In the open expanse of the heavens, and God created great sea monsters, and every living creature that moves, with which the waters swarmed after their kind, and every winged bird after its kind, and God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the waters in the seas, and let the birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and morning, a fifth day. Verse 24, Then God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures after their kind, cattle and creeping things and beasts of the earth after their kind. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth after their kind, and the cattle after their kind, and everything that creeps on the ground after its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Verse 26, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created man in his own image, in the image of God. He created him male and female. He created them, and God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and rule over all the fish of the sea, and over all the birds of the sky, over every living thing that moves on the earth. Then God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of the earth. And every tree which has fruit yielding seed, it shall be for food for you. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the sky and everything that moves on the earth which has life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and morning, the sixth day. There are three primary theological ideas in this passage. The first is this. God stands in majestic sovereignty over everything that He has created. Now, sovereignty is one of those hundred dollar theological words that means that God's the boss. He created it, so He is sovereign over it. Everything that the enemies of Israel worshiped, we're told in verse, in, in the first verses of chapter one, God made. Everything that Israel worshiped, or the enemies of Israel worshiped, God made. The second theological principle that we find in Genesis chapter 1 is this. This account lays the foundation for the giving of the Mosaic law to Israel. Since Yahweh, the God of Israel, existed prior to all of creation, how foolish it would be to have other gods, little g gods, before him. Since man was created in the image of God, how foolish it would be to make an image and call it God. Since God set aside the seventh day for rest, should we not follow his example and ourselves set aside time for rest and worship? That's the second theological principle. This account lays the foundation for the giving of the Mosaic law to Israel. Since Yahweh existed prior to all of creation, it would be foolish to worship anything in that creation. And finally... This passage reveals the activity of God in redemption. When we first encountered the earth in verse 2 of chapter 1, it is uninhabitable. Darkness engulfed the planet, and it is described as tohu bohu, formless and void. By the time this account is over, chaos has been translated into order. Darkness has been dispelled by the light, and that which was a wasteland was transformed into a place of beauty and production. After the man and woman are created in his image, God pronounces his creation very good, tov me'od, very good and worthy of blessing. So three theological issues as we consider chapter 1 that overlay this entire chapter. God stands in majestic sovereignty over everything that he has created And this account lays the foundation for the giving of the Mosaic law to Israel. Why would we say that? Because this book of Genesis was written when Israel was wandering in the land immediately prior to the giving of the law. So this sets the stage for the giving of the law. And three, this passage reveals the activity of God in redemption. Now there are a couple of other issues, preparatory issues, that I would like to mention before getting into the text itself. The first issue, the issue of the way the term Yom, Y-O-M, Yom, it's the Hebrew word for day, the issue of the way the word Yom is used in chapter 1. Are these literal 24-hour periods, or do they represent longer periods of time? I believe that there is a slightly stronger case that can be made for a literal 24-hour day here, but I'm not going to be dogmatic for those who hold to a day-age view, point out correctly that there is quite a lot that's going to happen on day six. More, they argue, than could happen on any 24-hour regular period. And the way days one through three are revealed, at the very least, leaves the door open for an understanding of longer periods of time in terms of days one through three and perhaps even days one through six. Now, having said that, there was a time in my life when I would immediately label anyone who made the statement that I just made as a theological liberal. Not a political liberal, but a theological liberal. But I'm no longer prepared to do that. Conservative scholarship conservative scholarship, is found in both camps. And it's frankly presumptuous, as well as unhelpful, to arbitrarily pronounce one view conservative and the other view liberal. The day-age people would also argue that theirs is not an accommodation to modern Darwinian theology, and that is basically what it is. It's an atheology, but it's it's his view of God, which is an atheistic view. Augustine, who wrote in the late 300s, early 400s, held to a longer period of time view. He didn't call it day-age, but he held to a longer period of time view. So there are many fine people that have held over history and hold currently to a longer period of time view for for the days in Genesis. It doesn't make them theologically liberal. Please. We don't want to show our ignorance there. Conservative evangelical Hebrew scholars. Conservative evangelical Hebrew scholars like Walter Kaiser and our own Ron Allen. I would call Ron Allen our own. He's told me personally if he lived in Houston, this is the church he would attend. I'm very flattered by that, frankly. I'm very flattered by that. But they are conservative evangelical scholars, and they hold to a longer period of time view, and that's okay. Alan Ross, for example, though, and Eugene Merrill, also conservative evangelical Hebrew scholars, who are well respected, hold to a literal 24-hour day view. All four of these men are as conservative as you get theologically. So it's not an issue of conservative or liberal when it comes to these theological issues. Now, having said all that, as well, let me give you three right, three reasons why I still lean toward a 24-hour view, while greatly respecting the exegetical abilities of men like Ron Allen and Walter Kaiser. Now, let me tell you a little bit secret, because I don't think Dr. Allen will ever hear this tape or watch it on video. He was supposed to be here a couple of weeks ago. Now, I'm I'm normally not intimidated, but but I am I am a, a little frightened by Ron when you disagree with him, <laughs> especially when you're one of his students and disagree with him. He, he doesn't typically take that well, and I understand why. You wouldn't, Dr. Allen, if you are listening to this in some time <laughs> in the future. <laughs> but I had to come down somewhere, <laughs> so this is the reason. This is the reason why I lean toward twenty-four hour time. Twenty-four hour time period. Elsewhere in the scriptures, when the term "yom" y o m the word for day, elsewhere when that is used with a number, day one, day two, etc. It indicates a 24-hour period. That's the typical way it's used grammatically. Second, the Decalogue, or the Ten Commandments, if you prefer, bases its teaching of the Sabbath observance on six days of creation and one day of rest. You have a week, six days in that week, and then one day of rest. And finally, after the sixth day, after the sixth day, the normal systems of days, weeks, and months, and seasons, and so on, is in operation. So those are the three reasons why I would lean toward 24-hour period. But again, I'm not going to, and I know there are plenty of people in this audience that hold to a different view, and that's okay. That's all right. This is not one of the major tenets of the faith. This is not a doctrinal statement issue. So if you do, don't get all worked up about it. It's okay. If you come to, I don't believe that, I'll say, that's okay. <laughs> because, it, because it really doesn't alter what Moses is expressing by means of the Holy Spirit in this chapter. And that's what I'm looking for the big picture. So that's the first issue that I need to cover in terms of preparation for covering the chapter itself. And I do believe it will probably take us two weeks to really cover this chapter. We'll do the, we'll do most of it today. The second issue is a bigger one. And that is the issue of Darwinian evolution, or also known as macroevolution, as a possible mechanism for how life came to be on planet Earth. Let me again remind you that Charles Darwin, who has become... The patron saint of atheism published on November 24th, 1859, his book, which was originally entitled, On the Origin of the Species by Means of Natural Selection, or subtitled, The Preservation of Favored Races in the Struggle for Life. In case you're wondering, the Darwinian view is that the Northern European races are the favored races. Now, this is not something they're going to teach in biology class in high school or college. You're going to stay away from this one. But this is the reality behind the myth that is often taught in biology class. They, Darwin viewed, and Darwinists since then, that will admit it, view the northern European races as the favored races. And it is beyond my ability to comprehend why anyone who is not of northern European heritage would be a Darwinist. And it's beyond my ability to comprehend why anyone would do that, knowing the background. The Darwinists would believe that anyone in that category is an inferior human being. This passage, our passage today, is going to tell us that everyone was created, man and woman, both in the image of God. It's offensive to the maximum. Offensive. That's why it's not taught. I wish some journalist had the guts, the guts to ask Richard Dawson Dawkins, it may as well be Richard Dawson the way you think sometimes, but Richard Dawkins <laughs> of Oxford, what his view is on the favored races. I don't hear anybody asking him that question. I doubt Dawkins, for all of his bravado about Darwin, making it possible to be an intellectually fulfilled atheist, would have the courage to answer that question honestly. Darwinism is about as racist as you can possibly get. And racism is ugly. To think less of somebody simply because of their race is ugly. It is non-Christian and it is sinful. Darwinism, by definition, is sinful. <laughs> I had promised myself I wasn't going to get worked up there because i got stuff to get worked up for later. i got to save my energy here. <laughs> But I didn't put the note there, so I didn't I passed it by. But. but in any case, in any case, Darwin did not pretend to have a competent view on how life came to be in the first place. Darwin's work was on the origin of the species, not the origin of life. He, 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 wanted, he wanted to know how one species became distinct from another species. The Darwinian view. The view that he proposed is, is rather embarrassing, actually. His view was of, of a primordial, prehistoric primordial soup. I'm not joking. This is, this is the truth. A, a prehistoric primordial soup with just the right elements existing for some reason. They don't ever say how it got there. But a preexisting primordial soup with all the right elements, the carbon and the nitrogen and, and the other things that are necessary for human life, existing and then a bolt of lightning or a series of bolts of lightning hitting in exactly the right sequence that began life existing now when that's in a movie called frankenstein we realize it's fiction but we look in science class and we say oh that must be true think about it for a minute and don't be buffaloed by these fellows just because of a series of letters after their name it just doesn't do it for me i don't know about you I didn't even like Frankenstein as a movie. It kind of freaked me out a little bit. But that, it's a prehistoric Frankenstein kind of thing. It's actually not very intellectually fulfilling for most Darwinists either. So that's why they've punted on that idea. Um, and that's why some, with a straight face, mind you, with a straight face, when you say, well, how did that primordial soup get there? That's one thing you hadn't answered for me yet. You know what, what they say with a straight face now? Many of them. Life probably didn't originate on Earth. Okay, Life probably originated on another planet. And that life was sent here. I'm not joking. That life was sent here on some sort of meteor. The meteor landed on Earth, and then that meteor had all the elements. All they've done is punt it to another part of the universe. It's embarrassing when you hide all the attendant problems with Darwinistic evolution behind the mist of a measureless path. It just doesn't make a lot of sense. My undergraduate work was primarily in the area of biology. In the spring of 1975, I took a course at Southwestern Louisiana University. I think it's called University of Louisiana Lafayette now. But at the time, I attended Southwestern Louisiana University, and the course was called Comparative Vertebrate Anatomy. And those of you who are doctors in the room uh, took that course as well, I'm sure. Anyone who's been in a pre-med, pre-dentistry, pre-chiropractic kind of program has taken that course, Comparative Vertebrate Anatomy. The course was taught by a man who, I will say it now because he doesn't have the power of the grade over me anymore, was a pompous atheist. And the course was, in essence, a course in Darwinian evolution. I'll never forget the first day of the lecture. I walked in and I... I think I was 19 or 20 years old, and, and I needed this course desperately. I had heard how difficult it was. It didn't have to be difficult in hindsight, but some professors make certain courses difficult to make themselves feel better, I think. You know, that's just how it works out sometimes. So I remember the first day of the course, and I was sitting there. I remember sitting fairly near the back, like most of you like to do. I, I sat fairly near the back, so I, I'm i with you on that. Uh, And i never forget the way he started off the class. It was a course in comparative vertebrate anatomy. Remember that? And so he starts off the class by saying this. He said, listen, fellas and girls, Darwinian evolution is a fact. It's not a theory. It's a fact. And if you'll give me time over the course of this semester and listen objectively to me, I will prove to you over the course of the next 15 weeks that, that macro evolution or Darwinian evolution is a fact. So now my world's just blown there. I'm thinking, wow, that's not, that wasn't part of my belief system. I was a Christian. I've been a Christian since I was seven years old. So I've been a Christian for quite a long time, raised in a Christian home, had a decent theological background. So I'm thinking, wow, this is odd because this is one of the, at least at University of Southwestern Louisiana, um, he was one of the top professors there. So I mean, now I'm, I'm confused. Because it's, I thought it was a theory. Now he's saying it's a fact. Well, then he went further. If he had just stopped there, I might have, could have made it. But he went further and he said, "Then listen, I don't want any of you Christians out there making appointments with me or slipping pamphlets under my door about this issue. If I catch you, he said, if I catch who does it, I will give you an F for the course. You see, was, that's why it's called a little pompous. So I will give you an effort. Of course, most most professors would at least be willing to dialogue with their students about things that, that they disagree about. So I thought, well, okay. And I went home that evening. I still lived at home for that particular semester, and my dad was there. I remember very distinctly, my mom was there, too, and sat down at the dinner table. And they do, like parents do, they say, hey, what's learning school today? <laughs> you know, so you're supposed to kind of outline everything you did that particular day. And I said, well, I had an interesting day today. I said, the, the teacher and compar- the professor and comparative vertebrate anatomy said that the Darwinian evolution was a fact. It wasn't the a theory. That's a do tell. Is that what he said? I said, yeah, that's true. I said, well, Dad, did you ever think about it? Maybe that's the way God created the earth. I'm not saying God didn't create the earth that way. I'm saying maybe, maybe that's the way God created the earth. Now, I just exposed something to you that, that is the truth. I bought it. Because he was a professor. He had the PhD after his name. He's told me that Darwinian evolution was a fact. It wasn't a theory. Between the time I left that class and the time I got home, I started rationalizing how it could be true. And I thought, well, I'd heard of this uh, this uh, theistic evolution idea. So, well, maybe that's the way God created the heavens and the earth. So I said, Dad, maybe that's the way God created the heavens and the earth. My dad's an engineer. He's been retired for a long time, mechanical engineer. So he thinks like an engineer. He said, really? And I said... Uh, yeah, I, and he said, if I give him time, if I'm objective, he'll prove it to me over the course of the semester. And that's okay. And so I sat through the class day after day and went to the labs and did all the dissections and things that are part of that and listened, watched all the slides. And, and each week, the professor would get closer and closer. I don't remember if it was on week 14. It had to be on week 13 or 14 because week 15 was the final. But when he, when he approached that day... He finally, after going through all the, the the theory of Darwinianism, after going through all that, he he made this incredible pronouncement. This is this so impacted me that I'll never forget it. He made the incredible pronouncement that on the following lecture, make sure you're here. You're here, especially you Christians. Get his nose like that? Especially you Christians, make sure you're here because I'm going to give you the indisputable proof. Of Darwinian macroevolution. Make sure you're here next week. So I had breakfast with Dad that day, and Dad said, how's it going? What's going on? I said, well, you're going to get the proof today. <laughs> he said, good. Well, I'll be home tonight. Why don't you... Uh, why don't you uh, we'll discuss it when we get home. I said, okay, I'll do that. I'm ready. Now, you got to understand, one more time, I bought it. I was not listening as a skeptic. I was listening wanting... To get the information. I was I, I I'm embarrassed to say this, but I assumed the professor was right. And the reason I tell you that is because I wasn't listening as some Christian skeptic wanting, not wanting to hear anything. This is an embarrassing moment for me, but that's the truth. I listened to, to get it right. So I went to school, sat in the class with great anticipation. I was a little nervous too because I thought over the course of the semester he really hadn't proved anything to me. I was a little nervous because it wasn't going that way, but he said he had the indisputable proof that lecture. So I sat down in the class and he said, here it is. And I'll never forget this to the day I die, at least if I don't get Alzheimer's or something. (laughs) He puts this picture on the screen of a sea turtle. I'm I'm thinking the same way. I feel the same way I did it back then. I'm thinking, okay, (laughs) all right. And then I'm I'm not really sure what he said after that because it was all kind of a blur, but it it was something about an experiment that had been done getting sea turtles on separate islands. One of the groups of sea turtles had thicker necks than the other sea turtles because they had a different physical environment that they were living in. And as a 19, 20-year-old who had bought into it, I was nauseous because I knew I had to go home and tell dad what the proof was. (laughs) And I'm thinking, it's still a sea turtle. Still a sea turtle. I don't care how thick its neck is; it's still a sea turtle. And the birds with the beaks—I knew all about that too. They're still birds. They have different beaks, thicknesses of beaks, lengths of beaks, and and so forth. Nobody in their right mind argues against microevolution—evolution within a species. I don't believe God created thousands of species of dogs, but I know now there are Chihuahuas and there are Great Danes. I have no problem with evolution within a species, neither do you, if you think about it. If you do, it's it's foolish, because you can observe microevolution. We're talking about macroevolution. And there was no macroevolution there. It was still a turtle. It wasn't like a giraffe had become a turtle, or a turtle had become a giraffe. It was silly. And then I went home that evening. I wasn't looking forward to the conversation. <laughs> they sat down at the table. Dad said, well, hey, how'd it go? Yeah, Went right. So what was the proof? I said, well, it was uh, <clears throat> <it's> a sea <laughs> <laughs> turtle. He said, oh, really? Yeah, Dad was smart. He, he so well, how, how does that make the case? How does that prove that? I said, well, um, the thickness of the one's necks were different from the thickness of the other necks. <laughs> They said, yeah, okay, I get that. I remember, he's an engineer, so you're going to have to do better than that, you know. And I said, doesn't really add up, does it, Dad? He said, no. I said, you knew that the whole time, didn't you? He said, yeah. He said, well, why didn't you say something? He said, because you need to learn that for yourself. He, he was willing to take the risk to let me go through that with some form of objectivity, and I think the reason for it may have been, among other things, today. What was this May 31st, 2009? So I could tell you that story. I looked at it objectively, and if you do it too, you'll see how silly it is. Now, not microevolution. Microevolution evolution within a species, of course. Christians, non-Christians, everyone would hold to that. It's, it's, any, it's any kind of uh, uh, scientific mind whatsoever. So, Darwinism is a bankrupt theory, scientifically, and more importantly, Genesis chapter 1 excludes any form of macroevolution as a mechanism for the differentiation of the species. What I'm trying to tell you this morning is, scientifically, it's a lousy theory. That's why, that's why frankly most people aren't Darwinist anymore. They're neo-Darwinist. They, they've tried to come up with something else. Genesis 1 excludes any form of that, including theistic evolution. So my idea that maybe that's the way God created it, that's not a valid idea either from Genesis 1. I'm going to resist the temptation to spend any more time here refuting Darwinism as a Darwinistic macroevolution as a scientific theory. That's This is not a science class. So I don't think that would be a profitable use of our time and... and uh, And I know some of you don't have an interest in that. But if you do have an interest in that subject, I'd be happy to suggest several resources that are objective resources you can look at on your own. So talk to me afterwards, and I'll get you the resources. And what I'd invite you to do is just take an objective look at it. I'm not afraid for you to take an objective look at it. And that includes all of you who have been through college and all of you that are going through it now and all of you who will shortly. Take a look at it objectively. And I'm certain that you'll come to the same conclusions that I did. If you're in college, or about to be in college, I would encourage you, though, I'd encourage you to do further study before you get into the actual courses, because there is no reason to lose your faith over this issue. None whatsoever. Darwin and Darwinism has no intellectual gravitas. Now, one final note. Anyone who studies biology, whether Christian or non-Christian, does believe in microevolution. So when you're discussing this with somebody, don't just say, I don't believe in evolution. You need to be more careful about that. Say I don't believe in micro, I don't believe in macroevolution. All people with any kind of sense at all would believe in evolution within a species. There are different breeds of dogs. That's observable. It's also consistent with biblical revelation. It is not a problem for the Christian. So when discussing the topic of evolution, you want to make sure that's straight up front. And one other final, and I do mean really final, thing this time. I found it fruitless to argue with college professors on this issue. All it's going to do is get you an F in their course. Discuss it if they will allow you. Now, my professor wouldn't even allow discussion, but discuss it if they'll allow you. Discuss it respectfully if they will allow you. But in the end, remember that they have the power of the grade. Uh, Pass the test and move on. There's no use in getting an F over that issue. Now, the six days of creation in Genesis chapter 1 can be outlined like this. We've read the chapter so you know what it says. The six days can be outlined like this. Day 1, creation of light and separation of light and darkness. There's a distinction that is made between light and darkness on day 1. Day 2, the sea and the sky are separated. there's an atmosphere that is separated on day two. Day three, fertile earth is created. Day one, creation of light, separation of light and darkness. Day two, the sea and sky are separated. Day three, fertile earth. Now keep this in mind, and and do this in in your mind, and I think you'll not ever forget it. I was going to make you a chart, and I said, no, I'm not going to do that. I want you to visualize this. It'll be more memorable. Day one, two, and three. Memorize that on one side of your mind. Okay. Day one, separation of light from darkness, creation of light. Day two, separation of sea and sky. Day three, the creation of fertile earth. Okay. That's on one, one column. Everybody got that? Visualize it. The second column, the column to the left, lights for the day and the night are created on day four. So you see days one and day four go together. On day one, there's a creation of light. On day four, there's a creation of lights, specific lights, the sun, the moon, and the stars. Day one, day four. Remember on day two, the sea and the sky were created. On day five, birds and sea animals were created. Sea creatures, rather, were created. Day day three, fertile earth was created. So you can probably do the math already. So on day six, what do you think is going to be created on day six? That which will occupy the land, animals, and mankind. So again, get this firmly entrenched in your mind, and the chapter will be so much easier. Days one and four go together. The creation of light and then the lights on day four. Days two and five go together. The separation of the the earth's atmosphere from the sea on day two. And then on day five, creatures for the atmosphere and for the sea. And then on day six, or on day three, the, the dry land is created. And then on day six, which corresponds to day three, creatures for the dry land are created. First the animals, and then mankind. If we, if we do that, I don't think you'll ever forget what was created on which day. In the first three days of creation, God brought about order and form through his sovereign creative acts. Order and form. In the final three days of creation, God brought about fullness and harmony. Within the created universe, through his sovereign created acts. Once more, in the first three days of creation, God brought, God brought about order and form through his sovereign creative acts. In the final three days of creation, God brought about fullness and harmony within the created universe through his sovereign created acts. Now, let's unpack just briefly these days one more time in those couplets. Days one, day one, and day four. Days 1 and 4. It is revealed from the beginning that God created this earth and all of creation by the word of his mouth. It's no surprise that John chapter 1, verse 1 calls Jesus Christ the Word of God. As to the agent of the Trinity specifically involved in creation. The Apostle John, the Apostle Paul, the author of Hebrews, all tell us that it was Jesus Christ. It was the second person of the Trinity. That was the agent of the Trinity specifically tasked with creation. However, Genesis, we've already seen it in Genesis 1-2, also implies that the Holy Spirit was involved in the event as well. Remember in Genesis chapter 1 verse 2, the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the water or was hovering over the surface of the water. At the outset, the world is engulfed in darkness. God speaks and light shines. As to the physical source of this light, which has been a source of consternation for many, the scriptures don't tell us. It doesn't tell us what the physical source of the light was. There is no revelation about that. But on day one, light and darkness were separated. On day four, God will create the sun, moon, and the stars. Or at least, if not create them, he'll turn them on. He'll turn the light switch on, and they will come on. Now there is significance to this, because in pagan mythology, the sun, moon, and stars were all worshipped. But days 1 and 4 teach us that even though the Egyptians worshipped a sun god... Remember, the Egyptians were the, were the powerful people to the, to the rear of the Israelites at this time. That's who they had just escaped from. The Egyptians worshipped a sun god. But Moses, through the Holy Spirit, is telling the Israelites, You worship the god who created the sun. Do you see that? That's the significance here. You worship the God who created that which the Egyptians, who you're so afraid of, worshipped. That's days 1 and 4. Now, day, days 2 and 5. On day 2, God sovereignly creates a division for the waters. Now, do you see already how there's a separation here? There's a separation of light from darkness. There's going to be a separation of the waters. Remember I told you before that this is, this is part of the foundation for the giving of the Mosaic Law? Because there's going to be a separation in the Mosaic Law. There's going to be a separation of this kind of food which is clean that kind of food is unclean. These are activities you can do. These are activities you can't do. This is setting the groundwork for that. So on day two, God sovereignly creates a division for the waters. He creates the atmosphere to separate the waters below from the waters above. It's possible. Now, we don't know because, again, there's not enough revelation, but it's possible... That before day two, the atmosphere may have been like some sort of extremely dense fog. So dense that there was no visibility and, and very little light that could get through it. So on day two, the, the seas are created in the atmosphere above. And then now remember on day five, think in your mind, don't say it out loud. It would be added to too much confusion. If the sea and the sky is created on day two, then what's created on day five? Creatures for the sea and the sky. And so that's what we have. So on day five, he creates life for the sea and the sky. Both the sea creatures and birds of the air were created and multiply after their own kind. After their own kind. This excludes the possibility of macroevolution. Now, the, the, the Hebrew term for kind is min, am I in? This doesn't specifically mean species. It would go too far to call that word a, an ancient Hebrew word for species. But what we're seeing already is there's a separation There are categories, and God says, okay, this is light, and light is not darkness. This is the sea, and the sea is not the sky. And now now he creates the animals of the sea after their own kind on day five. So there's a separation between the animals of the sea and the land animals. Genesis 1, you can twist it any way you want to. It doesn't allow for theistic evolution. Certainly not atheistic, but it doesn't allow for theistic evolution. You know what theistic evolution is. It means that someone who holds to evolution but thinks that maybe God created things that way. This phrase, after their own kind, seems to take that away as a possibility. God makes boundaries and sets limits for the self-perpetuation of his creation. He set the boundaries. He set the limits. Interestingly, though, the Canaanites, the land to which the Israelites were about to enter, worshipped and feared... The great sea creatures, the land of Canaan bordered the sea, they feared and worshipped these great sea creatures. Now what is Moses, through the Holy Spirit, telling the Israelites as they're out in the wilderness as he writes this? The Israelites worshipped the God who had created the great creatures of the sea and the birds of the air. Some ancient cultures worshipped the eagle. How silly that is. Moses is telling the Israelites how silly it is to worship an eagle. God, Yahweh, created that eagle. Your job is to get right with God. To get right with Yahweh, everything else is going to work out. Those are days two and five. And finally, days three and six. On day three, God caused dry land to appear and the earth to flourish with the growth of vegetation. That growth of vegetation is also after its own kind. And doesn't that make sense? Because the Israelites could observe that, couldn't they? They they were in Egypt, a lot of wheat grew in Egypt. They could see that you plant wheat and it grows wheat. You plant a wheat seed, it grows wheat. You don't plant a wheat seed and grow an apple tree. It doesn't work that way. So even in that, even in the plant kingdom, they saw there were these divisions, these categories, and so it's, it's part of their mindset to begin with. But on day five, he creates earth and then causes it to flourish with the growth of vegetation. So he had set boundaries on the seas, demonstrating his sovereign control of them. He makes dry land, and now he's going to set boundaries within that which he created on the dry land. Again, do you see how this is preparation for the Mosaic Law? Because God's going to do something, I'm going to set a boundary on marriage, for example. There's a lot of males out there, and there's a lot of females out there. But there's a boundary on this idea, and I'm going to create sexual activity. God will do it a little bit later. He's the one that created it. And it's wonderful, and it's good, and it's beautiful, as as long as it functions within the... The boundaries! That's right. And he's setting the stage for it right here. Everything has its boundaries. And as long as it's within the boundaries, it's wonderful and good. You get that outside the boundaries, and that which was created and designed to be wonderful and good becomes ugly and sinful. You see how it works. The Canaanites worshipped Prince Yam, Y-A-M, Yam perhaps, which is a deification of the ocean itself, So the the Israelites created the God who, the Israelites worshiped the God who created the oceans and set their boundaries. As to the issue of fertile land, the Canaanites worshiped the God Baal, B A A L. You may have pronounced it Baal at some point, but but technically Baal, who, among other things, in the minds of the Canaanites, would cause the land to be fertile. You need to see this from the, the perspective of the Israelites. They're about to go into the land. They worship this god, Baal. And there's many, there are many different Baals, but this is the Baal of the Canaanites. The Baal of the Canaanites caused the land to be fertile. At the end of each year, according to Canaanite myth, Baal would die, which explained in their minds why vegetation died every year in the wintertime. Actually, Baal was said to be captured by the god Mot, M-O-T, who is the god of death, and carried away... To an area under the sea, which was controlled by this Prince Yam we talked about a minute ago. It's a little complicated, but this is the world that the Israelites lived in. But each spring, Baal was rescued by Anat, which was Baal's girlfriend, who defeated Prince Yam in a bloody battle. Since there's no Canaanites around to get mad at me now, I'll go ahead and make fun of their religion. It's <laughs> just a joke. Baal was then free to ensure the crops would grow again. So this is the cycle. They, they thought Baal was, was, it was what made the crops there. So they worship Baal all year during the growing season. Baal dies at the end of each growing season. Mott comes and takes him, puts him under the sea. His girlfriend comes and rescues him. And then it all starts over again in the spring. Now, the Canaanites, I'm not going to go into this in any depth, but the Canaanites set out, helped, felt like they could help out in this process By engaging in in perverse acts of fertility, which I'm not going to go into here. Sadly, sadly, later in their history, the Israelites won't learn the lesson. And they will participate in these same perverse acts of sexual uh, perversion outside the boundaries that God set up. And they actually went so far as to practice child sacrifice in the days just prior to the Babylonian captivity. So they... They didn't learn the lesson from Genesis 1. Somebody, somebody in Israel should have been doing a sermon on Genesis 1, and somebody did. His name was Jeremiah. And he taught them about it, but they didn't listen. If they would have understood, Genesis 1, that Yahweh was responsible for the creation of the dry land in in the first place, and this fertility, not Baal, but Yahweh, and they had followed him in obedience within those boundaries that he had set up on a variety of things... Rather than engaging in this perversion of sexual activity and the abomination of child sacrifice, if they would have understood that, they probably would have never gone into the Babylonian captivity. If they would have understood and obeyed, God came down hard on them, hard on them as a nation because of these sins. And in, the, in the 722 BC, the northern kingdom conquered, or the northern kingdom was conquered by the Assyrians, and in 586 BC, the Babylonians conquered the southern kingdom. Now, listen to me, please. God does not tolerate indefinitely either sexual perversion in a culture or the murder of innocence. That's a serious message to our own culture today. He tolerates it, but not indefinitely. And it seems as though when it comes, when the judgment comes for that kind, on that kind of culture, it comes very swift and people say, what in the world happened? Now looking back, they probably re- could, could realize, oh, that was what that was. We should have listened to Jeremiah. Listen to Genesis chapter 1. So on day 6, remember on day 3, we have the creation of the, the separation of the sea from the land. There's vegetation on the land. Then on day 6, God created animals to occupy the dry land first, and then he created man to rule over them. And once again, they were created and would reproduce after their own kind within those boundaries that God has set up. Sometimes people say, well, what about all these projects? You know, cloning and, and, uh, and, and scientific projects that, that, are, that are designed to recreate what God has done. I don't think they're going to happen. God has set boundaries. Now they, and, and scientists can go right up to the edge. But it's my view that they're not going to be able to do it. God is the only one that can actually create life in that sense. And he set boundaries on it. In verse 26, then God said, Let us, plural, make man in our own image. That's a very significant phrase, and as as we are uh, out of time for today, I will postpone that study for next week. But once again, in chapter 1, we have observed God's sovereign majesty at work in his creation. The God who created the universe and everything in it, including you and me, is worthy of our most intense worship and our most loving obedience. If the God who created the universe by the word of his mouth is on our side, what have we got to fear? Heavenly Father, we thank you that you've revealed yourself to us. That you're there and you're not silent. And that you've revealed yourself to us. And now, Father, as we come to the conclusion of our time together today, I do pray specifically for anyone who is here this morning without Christ and without hope and without eternal life. Uh, Father, I do pray for them. We know that if we're rightly related to you, we have nothing to fear. But, but, Father, I pray for anyone here who's not rightly related to you by grace through faith that this might be the day of their salvation. Father, we thank you that our Lord himself said that you love the world so much that you gave your only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should never perish but have everlasting life. Father, through your Holy Spirit, I pray that if there's anyone here who has never personally trusted Jesus Christ to forgive their sins and to grant them eternal life, would come to the realization that they need a Savior today, would understand that your Son, Jesus Christ, was who he said he was, that he died for their sins and he rose again on the third day, And that their responsibility is to exercise faith. No works, just faith, Father. Help them to understand that. For those of us who have, by grace through faith, accepted that free gift through no merit of our own, Father, help us to understand the responsibility that we have to live within the boundaries that you have set up. Help us to know that the happiness will not be found outside those boundaries. And that if you were for us, Father, who can possibly be against us? Help us to understand these things in Jesus' name. Amen.